Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rindlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. It has been a while since we've talked. I think close to a couple months now since I put out a podcast. I am sorry to have been absent so long. I think by the end of this podcast, you'll understand all the reasons why that has happened. And I do hope to be back regularly, weekly, as soon as possible. But I've got to say, if I'm honest, it will probably be a few more weeks before I can do that. Now, here's some of the reasons why. I'll tell you a little bit more about what happened at the first of the year, but right about the end of January, my husband, and he had said this kind of thing in the past, and he's been a huge help with MDM all the way along, but he was really feeling the call to like kind of take over the reins. We've grown to a point where even with a secretary, even with my board, even with independent contractors, I just, I just continue to get further and further behind. And he could see that we just kind of couldn't go on that way. And he just kind of crossed, I don't know, that bridge or whatever in faith and just said, look, you really need more help. And I can see how much this blesses the lives of the women and the families that you work with. And I really want to be a bigger part of it, help run it. Well, it was really cool because Right about the time that he decided that he was feeling called to do that, God just dumped a bunch of materials in our laps that we have just been drinking (laughs) from like a fire hose as quickly as we can. Multiple books on um, organizational systems for small businesses that have been incredibly eye-opening and helpful on how to get us more organized. Turns out there's always two really important people at the head of any really successful company, a visionary and an integrator. There's actually a little test you can take online. Not everyone is a visionary or an integrator, but it just turns out that I scored really high on visionary. My husband scored really high on integrator. And so here we are ready to take the mission driven mom to the next level, working hard together, We put together an eight-point vision. We went out of town for a week to put that together. He's been working uh, more in tandem with Stephanie. He's found some tech help. He's really just working his tail off, and we're really starting to pick up speed. We're building out a sales team. We're building out a corporate team. Tracy Hyde was appointed the head of the academy. And in the midst of all of this, our teen pilot program was ending and we thought that we had some help to build out the teen program and that did not pan out. And so it turned out just within the last month that building out that teen program has fallen entirely in my lap. So in addition to the other things I'm going to talk about today, I have been trying to get this teen program built so it can be available next school year for all of you and your youth. Some schools are ready to bring it on. Some homeschool co-ops are bringing it on. I know there's several moms doing it with their youth. You clearly do not have to be a homeschooler. Um, 
schools can do it and moms and kids can do it in their spare time. That's what we've been working on here at the Mission Driven Mom. We've made some changes to the way the academy works so that we can pay our mentors really well. They're incredible women. They deserve to be paid well. If you are on our email list, you've been seeing these kind of We've been putting out sales as we change the way that we're doing things a little bit in the academy to make it better for you. I was trying to get level three ready. I've had several students waiting since last fall and just knew that that absolutely needed to be launched. So I was able to launch level three, which is a servant leadership course, which actually turned out way better than I thought it was going to. <clears throat> we're doing human action laws and comparing them to human nature. We're finding principles of servant leadership, principles of persuasion and principles of organizations and looking at all different types of organizations and the systems that make them run properly and the principles and just really, really, really cool stuff. And then a whole year of Western history in original works, finding principles, looking at the uniformity of the first principles, just really, really cool stuff. <clears throat> So looks like in another, well, that'll run two years. And then we'll have our first official graduates from the MDM Academy. So that will be really, really cool. So those are many of the things that have kept me from podcasting. I just needed to keep these other commitments to our students and our community in terms of the content they've been waiting for. And we really want to make sure that we serve you and give you what we've promised when we promised it to you. And so can't have been able to get podcasts out in the midst of all of that. So that's the update on the Mission Driven Mom and why I haven't been here talking to you as often as I was. And just so you know, we're making plans with our board, um, women that are working towards leadership team, our sales team, to get back to doing more Facebook Lives for you and letting you hear from these incredible women, their stories, their experiences, things that we hope will buoy you up and help you. Today, I need to spend the next few minutes talking to you about something that I've known for a couple months I need to do, and it's going to be rough, so... Hang in there with me while I try to get through this. Last year, if you were around the Mission Driven Mom, I did a series of interviews early on during COVID to tell you some stories of incredible women that I knew and to inspire, teach the seven laws, all kinds of cool stuff like that. And one of the interviews I did was with my sister, Sheridan Flint, and it was phenomenal. And in fact, I think of all those interviews, hers was the, was the one that we got the most responses to. She's adorable. And you can imagine if you go back and listen to that, which I highly encourage you to do, we did turn it, it was a Facebook live. We turned it into a podcast and I just talked to her about her life, her insights, how she's lived the seven laws of life mission, what they had done for her. She told some really cool stories from her life. It was really fun. Well, in the fall of last year, and if you were listening to the podcast last year, I mentioned a few times that hard things were happening in my family. And one of the hard things that was happening in my family was with my daughter. She was struggling. And at one point in the fall, she was ready to go and stay with her grandma for a little bit. And as we were getting all those plans made, she came back to me and was like, you know what? I want to go stay with Aunt Shardine. 
I really feel like that's the right thing to do. I've been praying about it. I feel like that's what I should do. Is there any way we could ask her? <laughs> now, of course, all of Sheridan's kids had left the house. If you know anything about her from that other podcast, she was the mayor of her city and busy, but also always ready to give of her time to others. So I called her. And of course, the first thing I said was, if the answer is no, just tell me no, but here's the situation. So I told her everything that was going on and asked if she would be willing to let my daughter come stay with her. And I think the original arrangement was like three weeks. And she's far more extroverted than her husband. So those kinds of things are always harder for him. But to his credit, he said, yes, she could come. And they totally bonded. Like they'd been close. I'd, you know, she'd come visit us. I'd take the kids up there. All growing up, we'd go to Aunt Sheridan's house and play video games and ride the horses and pet the dogs and go on walks and all the fun things there were to do with Aunt Sheridan, who called herself Auntie Fun, which I, we talked about in the interview. Well, she, of course, is unconditionally loving with my daughter. She takes time and listens. She affirms her. She's patient with her. She encourages her. She tells her over and over again what a good person she is and how she can overcome things. But she stands firm, too. And she would say things often like, well, you know what's right, so what are you going to do? And it was, it turned into about two months, all the way up almost to Christmas. They were sweet enough to extend her stay and let her really get her feet on the ground. And it was a really incredible experience for my daughter, also really bonding for the two of them. And during that time, Shireen was mayor, and I think she was mayor for two years or three, maybe three. Maybe she was going on her last year. Every month, there's a city newsletter, and so there's always a mayor's message, message from the mayor. So she would write these messages every month, and if you've listened to that interview and you know very much about her, she was a freedom lover. She studied government and economics extensively, like a lot of my family has, and studied everything else under the sun, too, because she read the classics like crazy. And she just understood fundamental principles of freedom and liberty of government. And so she was like, according to many reports, the best mayor they'd ever had, tried to be very fair with everyone. One of the things she was very proud of was that she did everything she could to keep her city open during all the COVID stuff. And sometimes she got kicked back for that, but she really felt like she shouldn't tell people how to live their lives, that it wasn't her job to control them, that they were big and they could make their own decisions. And, and so anyway, so she had felt for a little while, she told me that there was this certain mayor's message that she felt really strongly that she should write and that she was going to write it at Christmas time. And I'm going to read it to you later. But she was in the middle of working on this letter one day when, when she and I were talking. It was her hands were shaking. She was really nervous. She knew she was going to get kicked back. She knew people were going to be unhappy with her. She hated confrontation. She hated contention. And uh, she was really nervous about sending in this letter. And in fact, once she sent it in, the woman that was in charge of the newsletter emailed her back and was like, this is super inappropriate. It's Christmas time. We just need love and happy and flowers and puppies and whatever she said. And um, Shardine's like, print it. 
It was really courageous of her. I'll read it to you in a little bit. She had a concealed guns weapon, uh, li- weapons license, and sometimes carried her gun. And she really strove to be a really commendable mayor. So Christmas comes and goes. And in fact, during that time, my father-in-law passed away. So there were a lot of hard things in the last 12 months stuck, stacked all in a row. There were really great things too, but extra hard things in addition to COVID. So my father-in-law passed away right before Christmas. And then my daughter leaves Sheridan's house. She comes home for Christmas. She, she's living nearby on her own again. She declares about the third week of January that it's going to be cousins camp that weekend. <laughs> she calls all her cousins. Now, this was a tradition Sheridan used to do cousins camp. And my kids would go up whenever we could. And any of her nieces and nephews that wanted to come would come to her house for the weekend. And she would just spend time with them. And they would float boats down the canal and they would play video games and they would ride the horse and that, you know, I don't know, make cookies. I don't know all the things that they did. I was there sometimes and sometimes not. So she wanted to do this cousin camp. Only one other cousin showed up, but they had a marvelous time. And it was during that weekend that Sheridine had a really bad headache. Now, for years, she'd struggled with headaches and tried everything under the sun. And sometimes they would get better and sometimes they wouldn't. For the previous two years, she had had some health troubles, just like really, really low energy, just not feeling well overall. She had a holistic doctor that she saw that was helping her with certain protocols. And I have several sisters who are really into health and wellness. And so they, you know, were giving ideas and being helpful. She hadn't really been able to kick the headaches. So she had this really bad headache, which wasn't terribly unusual. But she also said later that this is when she started to forget words. She couldn't remember all the words that she wanted to say. So the kids left. And over the following week, she got more and more headaches. And these were full-blown migraines, really debilitating migraines for over a week, I think. Finally, they just were like, can't go on like this. This isn't okay. So they go to the hospital and now we're starting to get worried. So the family puts together a Marco Polo and we put everybody on there that wants to be on there. And we just start talking to her while she's in the hospital and sharing little stories and asking how she's doing. And they run a scan and she gets on the Marco Polo and tells us that she has two tumors in her brain and that they're going to do surgery and biopsy them in a few days. And then, so she sent that message and then she sent another message a day or two later she said something then but i later heard a little bit more about the whole story so when she first heard about the tumors and i don't know if this was exactly when she was diagnosed a couple days later or when she first learned that she that she had the tumors and need to be biopsied but she started to panic and feel really feel full of fear and she prayed really hard. One of the things, I think we mentioned this in the other podcast, but, and I'll talk more about this in a minute, but she went through a a lot of really hard things in her life and she used those hard things to drive her faith deeper. And it became a running joke in the family that if Sherdine prayed about it, it would happen. So 
you can see that she had a really close relationship with her heavenly father, with God and with, with Jesus Christ. And she loved them with her whole heart. She loved her savior very much and, um, had, had very spiritual experiences repeatedly. And so she had this panic and this fear and she prayed and then she felt this really profound peace wash over her and she felt really comforted and assured that everything would be okay. And this profound peace that came never left her. It was abiding all the way through. And she told us over and over and over again how grateful she was for every single person in her family and how much she loved us. And she did the second Marco Polo the day before that she had the biopsy. And I can't remember if I think that her seizure was before the biopsy. And so this would have been pretty close to before the first seizure. And on this Marco Polo, she said, I feel the sustaining presence of the Savior and a deep sense of calm. I feel his love and your love. And that's for the rest of her life, which wasn't long. That's what she continually expressed, that she knew she was being buoyed up and carried, that she felt our prayers, that she felt God with her. And this sense of incredible peace and calm. Now, she was known as Anti-Fun. She actually gave herself that name. And she was loads of fun. Unconditionally loving and accepting of the people around her. She could always be counted on for joking and laughing and having a good time. But she took what was serious very seriously. She took herself seriously she took other people seriously. She um, took her beliefs seriously, morality seriously. And so it reminds me of, I did a podcast last year with an excerpt from an article by C.S. Lewis called um, Weight of Glory. And that's one of the things that he says is that we are surrounded by potential gods and goddesses. And so we ought to take each other very seriously. And that's what allows us to love each other and to joke with each other because we've first taken each other seriously. So that's how she was. Anyway, she had a really hard life, which if you listen to the other podcast, you know, uh, from the time that she was very little, her mother was mentally ill and in bed a lot. She, her parents had little education. She was poor pretty much all growing up, very poor. She moved a lot, moved a lot with her mom and dad. And then after their divorce, moved a lot with my mom and dad, our dad and my mom. Always having to start over. And in that podcast, she talks about it and how she had to learn how to make friends really quickly. And she had a new stepmother who was only 10 years older than her when her parents divorced and she came to live with us. She had this new little half sister, me, that she was expected to take care of and love that came from this second marriage. And then there were other children to follow. She was separated from her siblings, you know, in her teenage years, living with her half siblings. She married young. Her marriage was really difficult at first. 
They also had lots of moves. They followed us around the first few years of their marriage. They were also very poor. She talked about that, deciding to stay home with her children and how hard that was. Her second son almost died of spinal meningitis when he was little. So lots of really hard things, like really, really hard. And she just forgave and moved on and didn't allow it to debilitate her, but just drove her faith deeper, developed her relationship with God. And she had rebellious teenagers. In fact, one of her children at one point in their teenage years ran away from home and she didn't know where they were for six months. Can you imagine? I can't even imagine. She adored horses from the time that she was little. And it wasn't until she was in her 40s that she was finally able to own her own horses. And that's when, right after she moved to Hyde Park. And she, in fact, her best friend told me, one of her best friends, many people said that she was their best friend. And so she had lots of best friends. One of her best friends in town said she probably rode horses with every person in Hyde Park that wanted to ride horses. So she kept choosing to be positive. She kept choosing God she kept choosing truth. So after she had the biopsy, a few days later, the diagnosis came and it was glioblastoma, which is the most aggressive brain cancer and maybe the most aggressive cancer. The hypothesis was that the one tumor had Bren in her brain for some time, perhaps years, that it had mutated into a second tumor where the cancer was and it was growing rapidly. We decided to cancel the family reunion and donate all the money that we would have spent on the reunion helping with her care. And, you know, as soon as I heard the diagnosis, I looked it up online and you know what it says. I mean, maybe you don't know, but life expectancy is one year with treatment. Of course, we had hopes of a miracle. Of course, we prayed for a miracle. One of my sisters who lives close to her and is really close to her, created a protocol for her of really nutrient-rich foods and a million healthy supplements, really expensive supplements to help her. And, um, you know, we're all praying for that. Well, like I said, she had the first seizure in the hospital and um, that pretty much wiped out her ability to read. The tumors are on the left side where the language is located and so for someone that had read her whole life adored reading if you listen to her podcast suddenly she couldn't read like literally like she would look at the page and it wouldn't make any sense and she was like it's okay this doesn't matter god's in charge it doesn't matter and she meant it like with a smile on her face and she couldn't remember words and so it got harder and harder for her to talk she would try to talk and she could follow you, you know, as you talked and engage like with body language and some words, but she would often lose the words that she wanted to say and couldn't really engage in conversation. And for someone that loved people and loved to talk again, like really tough. And again, like, it's okay. It doesn't matter. What matters is just that we love each other and we're here for each other. God's in charge. We had to wait two weeks for a treatment plan. 
and sometime in all of there in all of that and I don't know exactly I can't remember exactly the order of events but it took him a while to get a treatment plan and we were all really frustrated about it in the meantime she had another seizure at home and it was pretty severe and after that seizure she couldn't move the right side of her body I told you this was going to be hard to get through. Sorry. <laughs> it's completely limp. When I was there, which I'll talk about in a minute, I wanted to give her a lot of hand and foot massages. And she couldn't feel it when I was massaging her right side. She just couldn't feel it. And it was completely limp and really hard for her to walk. She really couldn't walk on her own. It got harder and harder. They only had a bathroom upstairs and downstairs, so when she was on the main floor, where the family room and kitchen were, she was having to go up and downstairs, and finally, by the time I got there, we just had to use like a porta potty, and it was so much, so hard for her, we kind of basically had to help carry her there. So, she's on this protocol that my sister has her on. She can't read, she can't talk much, the right side of her body is out of commission and this has all happened in a month or less so she goes to the doctor for the treatment plan and it's not they don't have a lot of hope that they're gonna help her live a long time the doctor gave her like six months to live or something or 90 days I can't remember she's gonna be sick a lot if she does the treatments she's just not gonna feel well she's been praying her heart out ever since like she first went to the hospital especially since they found the tumors she's been praying and praying and praying and she's had this peace right and this like unconditional love and like this unbelievable ability to just accept whatever comes without complaint never a grumbling word never a complaint about any of it so she calls her husband in and sits him down and says i'm not going to accept treatment and you can imagine, he understands what that means. He's going to lose her faster. I'll talk about this more in a minute, but their relationship is just so harmonious and beautiful. It's just joyful to watch them together. And so he asks her, have you done everything you wanted to do? And she said, yes, yes, I've done everything in my life I wanted to do. And I have no regrets. My life is in God's hands at this point. For her sake, you know, it's he honors her. He doesn't beg and plead. He doesn't get angry or frustrated or resentful. He loves her. He trusts her implicitly. It's her life and it's her death. And so he, it's hard. I'm sure he wept a lot, but he accepts her request. And now I was actually on this retreat with my husband to go over MDM stuff when my sister called to tell me that she had rejected treatment and I knew what that meant. And I was pretty inconsolable for a day or two. We had, she called a family meeting and asked her siblings to be there and their spouses. And she told us herself the best she could that she knew that it was right, that she knew that her life was in God's hands, that she had prayed about it, and that she was not going to accept treatment, and that it was going to be okay. 
So you can imagine at this point, we're all scrambling to come see her as quickly as we can. And so two or three weeks later, I actually had a a speaking engagement in Idaho. And she lives in, lived in Northern Utah. And so I just kind of did them back to back and came and took care of her for a couple days. And I want to tell you what I saw when I was there. Now, Sheridan was not perfect. <laughs> she had her faults, of course. But I just, I felt like it's so important for me to do this podcast as hard as it is, because it's important for you to hear the rest of the story from someone who has really dedicated their lives to God and truth. Someone who has genuinely attempted to live their life well, who has made plenty of mistakes and done everything they could to try to fix them and repair them, who was always ready and willing to apologize, who stayed humble, who sought truth, and who courageously executed on things she felt God was asking her to do. She did not want to be mayor. She didn't even super want to be on city council. (laughs) But she had been prepared. So, when I got there, there was a lot of peace in the home. It was clear that, and I knew that she and her husband loved each other dearly. They had this little ritual when they came and went in the house of saying how much they loved each other and It was really cute. They would just look at each other um, in such a knowing, loving, deep way. I mean, you know, the, the effort that went in to the marriage that we witnessed, you know, it, it took a long time. It took a lot of dedication and it took having, allowing God to heal them and, and to forgive each other. So their relationship was really beautiful to watch. I remember at one point she asked for some snack and he happily went to the kitchen and asked her how much and asked her what she wanted. And she, you know, kind of expressed. Now, by the time I got there, she was really struggling with her words. And so there were several times when he would sit next to her chair and, you know, for five, 10 minutes at a time, is it this? Is it this? Is it this? And throw out different words. Did you want food? Did you need the restroom? Did you want to watch something? Do you need to nap? What food do you want? Is it this? Is it this? Is it this? And just, you know, both of them laughing and holding hands. And about how she couldn't think of the word of what she wanted. It was so humbling. It was so beautiful. So I go, I go in the kitchen when I'm first there and there's this big stack of cards, like, you know, condolence cards or whatever on the kitchen bar. And I ask her husband, I ask Kevin, you know, are are these cards that people have sent? And he says, oh, that's just a fraction of them. And it was quite a thick stack. Most of them with money in them. All of them offering condolences, offering to help. There were plants and flowers all over the house. Something was delivered every single day. There had been a campaign in the neighborhood and note cards had been passed around 
telling everybody that Mayor Flint was sick and to please write a note and mail it to her. And they put the postage on these cards so they could write a note and mail it to her and tell her how much they loved her. The police had called. So one of the things I didn't know is that, I mean, I knew that Sheridan loved music. I didn't realize that she made up little songs a lot. I don't know why. Maybe she told me that. I didn't remember that. But when she was mayor, maybe even when she was on the city council, but when she was mayor for sure, she wanted the police to know how much she valued their hard work and sacrifice. And so every year she would write a funny song for them and she would bring them a gift from her and she would go into the police department and sing them this song and give them a gift. And so they really loved her and knew how much she honored them. And they wanted to do a salute at the funeral. They called after she passed. They accompanied the funeral service. In the city council, they did a moment of silence. They disbanded the meeting early in her honor. There were constant phone calls, constant visits. Kevin told me that there was someone had offered to coordinate volunteer help to come in and do anything, cook, clean, watch her, take her somewhere, take her, you know, two hours away to a doctor's appointment, anything they could do. There were over 80 people on that list waiting to help her. And really only the people that were very closest to her even had time to see her and spend very much time. And when family was there, they didn't want a lot of other people there. And there was so much family because there's 10 kids and then nieces and nephews came and her own children wanting to have plenty of time with her. Um, the two days that I was there, flowers were delivered on one day. Uh, more cards came in. Her best friend came over to visit. One of her best friends. <laughs> we talked, me and her and Sheridan, and she told stories of memories they had together. I actually recorded it. And, um, She's the one that told me that Sheridan had pretty much ridden with everyone in town. And one of the other things that she said was, she says, I have lived in this city my entire life. And Sheridan knows far more people and is far more beloved. Because she had just served everyone in town for 18 years that she'd lived there. When she came in, she brought a quilt with horses on it that friends had gathered together to make for her. It was beautiful. When she opened it, we all just started crying. The next day, the former mayor came to visit, who had actually gotten her to run for city council in the first place and asked her specifically to replace him as mayor. And he said something interesting. He said that he had been working away from his family for the last year or two, coming home to visit regularly, but not living there her sudden illness and decline. He said it had really been a wake-up call for him and he was working on a way to be able to work near his family, live at home and work. It was a beautiful visit. We were able to have some really beautiful moments together and we didn't say goodbye, but we both knew <clears throat> that we were saying goodbye. <sighs> so... That was in the middle of March about. She passed away on April 6th. So about two and a half weeks later. So from the time that she went to the hospital to her passing was just about two months. Of course, the funeral was beautiful. 
healing in many ways. Many, many, oh, so many people came and so many people reached out to me. I was really surprised. Me, just, you know, her sister, not even one of her kids. Her children gave a beautiful tribute to her. You know, she was all of their best friends and she was kind of the glue in her family and in our extended family. It's forcing us to draw even closer to each other. They focused at the funeral on all the things that were just supremely her, her deep and abiding faith, devotion to God and her family and her country, her love of freedom, her dedication to truth, and how much joy she always, you know, brought to others and how much fun she was. One of their dear friends spoke years ago. She had started up a book club and this man is a leader of a lot of people. And he was talking about how he was talking about the leadership principles that she had taught him. He talked about how she was a bit of a dictator because she called this book club together. It was a couple's book club and it sounds so awesome. I really want to do it. And she sat everybody down and she said, okay, this is my book club, so I get to make it the way I want. There's one overriding rule in this book club. And that is that we are going to pursue truth. We're going to read works worth reading. And we're going to discover the truth together. And they did that. And it was um, really enriching for all of them. I walked outside after the funeral. There was standing the most beautiful horse-drawn carriage I had ever seen in my life. The horses were decked out with beautiful braids and ribbons all over them. And this gorgeous carriage behind matching horses and someone in town that loved her and had a connection made sure that her coffin was taken to her grave by horseback. It was a horse-drawn carriage. They put the coffin in and we went to the, to the graveside and said our last goodbyes. At lunch after the funeral, I was talking to her husband and one of my brothers. And, you know, we were just reminiscing and talking about wonderful things about her. And my brother said, I feel like a great soul has just left the earth. And there aren't very many great souls here. And we all just, you know, nodded and agreed. We felt the same way. So I want to finish by reading you this letter that she wrote. I'm going to do my best to get through it. I am sorry. I prayed for a long time before I started today so that I could get through this okay. I've done an okay job, I think. I wanted to make sure I did it while so much of it was fresh. And to explain to you why I've been a little checked out. With all the other demands on my time and being there for my family and handling my own grief. So this is the letter that she wrote to the city and it's, we'll put it in the notes on the podcast page and you can um, read it for yourself. It's simple. It's direct. It speaks right to the heart of who she was. And, you know, I just, I just want to emphasize again that, you know, one of the boys in our mission-driven teen group this year, and we had a phenomenal group of kids that went through the program. I sent a video out recently with some of their presentations. And one of the boys said that one of the things that he loved 
about the Mission Driven Teen Program was that he really wants to be a great person. He really wants to um, be a man that, you know, is missed and remembered someone that he, you know, just a good man. And he would learn about great people. The person that he cited was Fred Rogers. He and my son are friends and they both think Fred Rogers is pretty dang cool. And he's like, so I would, you know, learn about someone great. And I would think, okay, well, I have to just do all the things that they did, right? And that would get really overwhelming really, really fast. He's like, especially, you know, when I'm trying to be Fred Rogers and I'm not. And I want to make that point about Shardine, you know, it's easy to say, you know, for me, be easy for me to say, well, I need to play more video games and I need to, you know, do more cousin camps or I need to be mayor. I need to get into government or politics. That's not, that's not what I, that's not the message I want to convey. The message that I want to convey is that when you follow your mission with integrity, you don't know how much good you're doing you don't know how many people you're influencing. Shardine influenced tens of thousands. And you know what? She was just a stay-at-home mom with no college degree. In fact, she only went to college for one year. And so it's not about all that other stuff. It's about really embracing the seven laws and living them with integrity. We want to help you do that. But even if you don't, utilize our programs. You can follow that pattern. You can live those principles. You can engage in self-honesty and listen to your conscience. You can meet your own real needs. You can manage your emotions better. You know, you can discover your gifts and develop them. And there, it's not a straight path. It's not as if, you know, you do one and then you do the next one. You know, it's kind of a little, looks a little messy in execution. That's why the principles are there because we just cling to those, right? And we can say without a doubt that those principles from those laws, Shardine lived the best she knew how. And she wasn't trying to be famous and she wasn't trying to be someone great, but that's how the people around her felt about her. So this is the letter that she wrote. During my time as mayor, I have had people call me periodically and ask me questions which I am happy to answer. Sometimes they're not brave enough to make the call themselves and they have someone else call. I love to answer questions and complaints and generally these are good conversations. As a rule, people I talk to are hesitant to call. I think it can be intimidating, although I like to think that I'm one of the least intimidating people I know. These conversations are about city business and usually I know the answers. Not always to people's satisfaction, however. But you know what? I have never had anyone call and ask me questions about their health. You may find this hard to believe since I am such a fountain of information, but it has never once happened. That's just her little funny sarcasticness coming through. This is why I find it so surprising that a large number of people are turning their health concerns over to politicians and bureaucrats. Perhaps you're thinking right now, how silly. No one would ask, to po ask a politician for health advice. These are the same people that told us that nuclear fallout was perfectly safe. Thamaldehyde was good for mothers. And mental illness could be cured by lobotomies. Isn't that what we're doing now? This new virus we are dealing with has been tough. 
And there has been a learning curve. It has created a lot of fear, and fear sometimes makes us think less clearly. The citizens of Hyde Park are smart, resilient, independent thinkers. Our forefathers settled this land, fought in two world wars, and would never have asked the government to take care of their health concerns. Freedom was the most important possession they had, and the rights given them by God were worth fighting for. Can you see your ancestors asking the government if it was safe to come settle in Cache Valley, or if it was a good idea to fight the Revolutionary War, or asking the experts if they should cross the plains? There are more sides to this virus story than you may think. Did you know that there is a 99.8% survival rate? That a huge European study found that children are perfectly safe going to school? That a large Danish study proved that masks don't work? That the tests we are using are too sensitive and give up to a 90% false positive result? All information endorsed by many physicians and scientists, but not co covered by the majority of news outlets. I know you may be thinking I'm sort of a crazy person, and maybe you're right. But please be independent and free-thinking pe people like our ancestors and check it out for yourself. Meanwhile, here in Hyde Park, we will not be policing you to see if you are gathering or wearing a mask or social distancing. We'll treat you as thinking, rational people who can come to their own decisions and have the freedom to act accordingly. Be brave. Think independently. Love others. Merry Christmas. Thanks for joining me today. It was a rough one. I hope that her story enriches your life in some small way. I hope that there's a lesson from the interview last year and from her quick passing that can bless your life and your family's life in some small way and that her influence can continue to reverberate in our community and other places and that her legacy can continue to bless lives. Have a wonderful day and I will see you soon.